Sup, freaks? Freaks? Am I calling you freaks? Yes, you're freaks. It's your boy Marty Ben here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Luke Roman from the Forest for the Trees, LLC. Uh, somebody with an incredible view on macro themes and uh, huge macro events that are going on in the world right now. We sat down to talk about a bunch of things. You'll hear them once you listen to this episode. Uh, Luke also just released uh, Volume 2 of his Mr. X interview series. Uh, so if you guys want to check that out, um, we will be linking to Luke's bio in the show notes so that you can go find that book. It's on Amazon if you just want to look it up. Uh, the Mr. X interview, volume two. This episode is brought to you by good friends at the motherfucking cash app. You freaks should know all about them, but if you don't know about them, let me tell you about them. You help making sats the standard. You can uh, buy sats, sell sats if you need to, send sats, receive sats, uh, again, we're buying whole sats, not fractions of a Bitcoin. You can make sats the standard within the app. It's the easiest place to stack sats in the U.S. And uh, you can also stack slivers of stonks if you want to. All right, if you if you got a favorite stonk and you want to stack it, you can buy as little as one dollar. Uh, this is via Cash App Investing, which is a member SIC, SIPC, excuse me, and a subsidiary of Square. Uh, this may be hooked up to your bank account. You can start stacking sats and slivers of stonks right away because it's directly hooked up to your bank account or it may even be your bank account. They have accounting numbers and route num- routing numbers that users can uh, use to direct deposit paychecks into the Cash App. And they have these sweet debit cards that have been going around. They've got uh, special edition ones. They have glow-in-the-dark cards. You can personalize all of them. Uh, if you, uh, you want to uh, flaunt that you're, you're a Bitcoin or put the Bitcoin sign on there, you can. Again, that's... Uh, frowned upon in the the opposite conscious Bitcoiner world, but it's possible. Hey, optionality to each their own. All right, make sure you go check all this out by downloading the app and use the code StackingSats when you do that. It's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls across stacking sats. Use the code and enjoy this episode with Luke Roman. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Dense hour. I think you guys are gonna love it. Take care. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. <clears throat> what is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a lovely Monday afternoon. Very excited for this conversation. I'm sitting down with Luke Roman, founder of The Forest for the Trees, LLC. Uh, Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here, Marty. Thank you for coming on. This is a, a bit of a pinch myself moment for me. I've been consuming your content for years and really respected your views on uh, macroeconomics and, and the state of the uh, U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar as reserve currency of the world. Um, actually, I was just telling you before we hit record, I've written a few newsletters uh, riffing off of your your content around uh, commodities, particularly oil, getting uh, getting settled in currencies other than U.S. dollar, mainly between China and Russia. But um, I think today, uh, you've been 
doing an incredible round of podcasts most most recently with Preston Pish on the the Investors Podcast. A great episode. If you freaks haven't listened to it yet, definitely go do it. Um, so just to set the stage for this conversation, don't want to repeat too much of what was going on, but I, I think you had a, a great tweet this morning. Uh, He's basically saying investing as if the U.S. dollar is gold and not a ruler printed on a rubber band is dangerous. Building a system using rulers printed on rubber bands is also dangerous. <laughs> um, and so alluding to the fact that we have uh, a global economy uh, being priced in an asset that, that is not very good at pricing things at the moment. Well, it's, you know, it's it's whether it's good or not in terms of pricing things, right? It's like the old saying, what's what's normal for the spider is chaos for the fly, right? So um, what I meant by that tweet was highlighting that there just seems to be, you know, what, a, a couple different narratives out there at different ends of the spectrum. And, and one seems to be looking at the world as if the dollar is gold and fixed in price and, and sort of a North Star for uh, figuring out investment assets. And the reality is, is it's not, it's, it's flexible. And, and as we saw in March, when we need to create more dollars, uh, the Fed can create a lot more dollars very, very quickly. And there are some very good things about that system. Um, at the opposite side of the spectrum, you have uh, a, a group of, of investors or some investors, so certainly the other side of the spectrum for for uh, this debate is that acknowledging that this that the system has structured, that the dollar is infinitely flexible and that as long as inflation isn't problematic, that this can go on and on and on. And there are issues with that view as well. And so I, I think we're sort of in between where we're in a spot sort of if 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 these are sort of two trapezes where, you know, we were we were holding on, or the markets were holding on to the, the dollar as gold in March, and 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 we've seen the dollar fall, the Fed supply dollars, um, uh, markets rally over the ensuing. You know, I guess we're gosh, almost coming up on on the six month mark now. Uh, now we're at this other side of things where it's you know there's no downside to this. We can keep doing this. Inflation's as long as inflation is tame and. And so I just think that there's, you know, I, I think we're coming up on a, on a make or break moment in markets and in the economy where we're either going to, I think, have uh, authorities pull back and then we're going to be moving back towards that, the, the, the dollar is gold, or we're going to really start, you know, putting putting this this concept of the rubber ruler to, it, to the test a little bit more than we even have. What do you think the likelihood of them? pulling back is at this point it seems like they're backed into a corner if they were to pull back it would immediately send things into a, a tailspin isn't that exactly what happened with the the repo hiccups last year around this time actually yeah i think it's um the short answer is i think if they pull back on the stimulus i think it's very problematic i think it'd be very bearish or bullish for the dollar excuse me and bearish for just about everything else and the challenge within all that is that we're we're in a hyper political environment in a hypersensitive time of the political cycle given how close we are to the presidential election um and so that to me is probably your biggest risk really is just how um though the the, the uh, unpredictability 
uh, of that. Now, the one thing I would say that I think is really importantly different now versus a year ago as it relates to, in particular, the repo rate spike and some of the regulatory constraints that helped drove that, that helped drive that, uh, to use proper English, um, is that in April of this year, the Fed uh, changed the banking regulations, the supplementary leverage ratio, uh, rate, uh, or SLR for short, regulations that exempted treasuries from the calculation of bank uh, leverage ratios. And so, uh, whereas uh, they there were hard and fast leverage ratios um, for the banks as it relates to buying treasuries, which in short, effectively was sort of a gold standard of, of sorts through the dollar and through the Basel III banking regulations around the dollar system, those have been removed as they're related to treasuries now. And so it's it's not fully crossing the Rubicon, but we've, you know, we're, we've waded in and we're probably up to our knees in, in the Rubicon River in terms of uh, the separation of, uh, of, of the Fed and Treasury. And so now you basically have a situation where the banking system can buy uh, an infinite amount of treasuries um, and hold them on their books. And as long as, as nominal yields are positive, that is a economic, a nominally economic value added activity for them. They are going to be making a positive spread. And so there's this release valve through the banking system this time that didn't exist a year ago. If, um, if we start to see politically um, so, some, some, pullback on the stimulus. Um, but again, it, it ultimately, when you look at the percentage of GDP, percentage of consumption, percentage of consumer spending that have been coming effectively from government transfer payments over the last six months, it's hard to imagine um, that being a good situation if, if we really get a hard shutdown, if you will. Yeah. And that's, I, I saw a tweet this morning from somebody uh, throughout history uh, 50 out of 51 countries that have, have had a debt-to-GDP ratio above 130% have defaulted. The only one not to is Japan. And the tweet uh, was sent out because if we keep on this course, by the end of the year, the U.S. will be at 140% debt-to-GDP. Uh, do you think we can escape like Japan has from this default? Um, and it was, by, if I remember right, the, uh, the underlying... Um um, uh, source for that. I, I'm trying to think of the name of the uh, uh, the money manager who uh, who had the original source data. Hirschman Capital. Capital. Yes, I knew it was an H. I wanted to say uh, Horschman Capital, but Hirschman. Um, and I've seen the data, and and the bottom line is is that default can take place either through restructuring or through inflation. Is is the point? And uh, to answer the question, can we avoid it like Japan? In my opinion, no. Um, and. I think it will be done via inflation. Um, I think we've started that process. It's a little bit of a, um, a political process that has to take place within the United States to accomplish that. Uh, but I think, I think we're very different than Japan. Uh, we're a credit, or excuse me, a debtor nation. Um, Japan's a creditor nation. Uh, they have a significantly positive net international investment position uh, as a percent of GDP. Ours is negative 50% of GDP. Um, they have historically funded internally, uh, whereas we have historically funded externally. And so when you put all these things together, the United States situation is 180 degrees different than Japan's. And so to me, 
it strains credulity that the United States would end up in the same situation as Japan. Now, a big, a big mitigator of that to this point, and, and in the short run, I think can continue is, is where the reserve currency in Japan wasn't. And I think that's been a big, a big deal. But, you know, to my, to the point I made starting off with, in terms of this political process, a decision has to be made for the U.S. To my eyes, um, it looks like that, those, that political machinery has been started. When you look back at, at Donald Trump invoking the National Defense Production Act, which gives him and the U.S. government great leeway to spend as they see fit. When you see the COVID crisis uh, basically, excuse me, removing uh, all pretenses on either side of the aisle in terms of concerns about deficit spending, uh, when you see uh, that also give the Fed carte blanche to do what it has done, you're, you're, and then importantly, you're, you, when you get the supply chain disruptions we've had, you've got yourself a pretty nice little uh, cocktail recipe for uh, potentially significant inflation, which um, uh, that would be very different than what Japan has, ex has experienced. Um, and so I think that that's, I, I think that um, my view has been and continues to be that, that the United States will not avoid that situation, that we'll be the 51st out of 52, and that it'll be via uh, high rates of inflation. Um, and, uh, you know, we're starting this process as well. Unlike Japan, we're starting this process with very high rates of debt to GDP. And so Fed, we can't afford higher interest rates. So Fed is, if inflation does pick up and the bond market does start to snip it out, uh, you're likely going to see um, the Fed have to take down increasing amounts of the bond market. And as crazy as that sounded six months ago, obviously since then, we've seen what, what they've done with treasuries. We've seen what they've done with mortgage backs. We've seen what they've done with corporates and even uh, small amounts of junk debt. Um, so I, uh, you know, the short answer is no, I don't think we'll avoid it. Yeah, it seems like we find ourselves in a very precarious situation. And going back to your comment of, can they pull back the decision to pull back or moving forward? You said they can't pull back politically because it, it may make the dollar stronger, but the economy would suffer as a result. But isn't there a political... Like, this is why I think Fed's in a catch-22 and the U.S. economy's in a catch-22. Because even if they go forward and the inflation that you're describing um, comes to fruition, there's going to be some blowback there, too. And there's also an argument to be made that this policy has angered people, too. Because you see the, the CNBC shot of NASDAQ at all-time high while 30 million people unemployed. It seems that both, uh, both solutions to the the problem that the Fed has found itself in lead to something that's not politically uh, desirable at any point. I think that's right. I think ultimately when you look around the country and you see social unrest at the levels, the highest levels it's been in, in arguably 50 years, I, I think some of these protests, I think clearly all these protests have some element of a social angle to it, but I think underlying uh, that the, the the, the, the real sort of big logs, the fuel logs to, to keeping these uh, the social unrest burning is income inequality, uh, frustration with the system, um, and, and these types of uh, socioeconomic issues that people have been highlighting for a long time. I think they're finally showing up. Um, and so it is, it's, they are in a bit of a catch-22. And it to me, it speaks to... Um, 
the importance of this election in terms of what we're starting to see out of, you know, so I saw uh, Biden either yesterday or over the weekend talking about basically forgiving student debt. Um, that to me, number one, it sets it up as, a, as the, it sets things up as game changers for the election. If, if, if Biden increasingly runs on what Obama is saying looks a lot like Bernie Sanders platform, um, you know, that is, that is, uh, that's probably a winning ticket for him. And, and if that's the case and he follows through importantly, um, you know, either one of either he's going to follow through or he's not. And if he doesn't, then I think we're going to go right back to, um, you know, to a lot of U S cities on fire. And, uh, if he doesn't, uh, or if he does follow through that, is you know another several steps deeper into the Rubicon we're waiting in terms of um, you know lending money uh, and then and forgiving it and and I think ultimately this is where we have to go um, this is the you know had we not wanted to do all this <laughs> there there are you know there, there, there's no undoing this without either a time machine or uh, some very very unfortunate or drastic uh, measures um, happening. And so the um, you need to have some sort of debt jubilee and it needs to on either a real basis, uh, you know, student debt's a real easy one because the government owns the other side of it, right? So they have a printing press collateralizing all that debt, that debt's hanging over the head of students. They can wipe that out with one 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 you know click of the keyboard you know delete to maybe two delete enter and and um, boom all of a sudden you have directly put um, a whole bunch of money into the pockets of a group of people that actually have a very high marginal propensity to consume and that I think is really important when you look at you know, part of our problem is not just the wealth inequality that we have. Uh, but the wealth, the, the demographic wealth distribution. And so when you've got so much of the money held by a, a group of people with a very low marginal propensity to consume, that is older people, um, that relative to the younger, if you start putting money in, in younger people's hands, you're going you're to start seeing velocity in the economy pick up, velocity of money, velocity of activity. Um, you know, basically, if you look at the demographic charts from ages 25 to 45 or 43, whatever the age is, is the maximum. You know, there's a there's a line up into the right in terms of per capita spending, and and so you put money in those people's pockets directly, and they're going to turn around and spend right away. You you do things like taxing or cuts for the wealthy, and the wealthier over 65, by and large. You know they they'll take it, but at the end of the day, the, you know maybe they'll go out to eat one more time a week. Maybe uh, they they don't, you know, as a group. Now this is smoothing over the income effects even within that group. But as a group, they don't need the money, um, and so uh, that you still would need sort of a, some sort of inflationary uh, part of a debt jubilee where you're working down the real uh, the real value of that debt for the debtors. But a big first step would be something like that. So I think it's going to be important to see some of the political, uh, you know, out outcomes, I guess, if you will, uh, as we move into the election. Uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a debt jubilee of student debt. I mean, I know a bunch of people my age would would very much like that. But it, but how that could be 
a bit affected, but then you think about like unfunded liabilities going into the future and these state pension funds and their uh, propensity to underfund what they're promising. And is the wave of, of debt too big to overcome um, when combined, when, when it's all combined? Yes, debt jubilee of student debt may aff- uh, afford some temporal relief, but at the end of the day, there's, there's a bunch, there's a tsunami of, of other debt crises right behind it. I think that's right. And the, the short answer is no, it's, it, it wouldn't be enough. It would, it would buy time. It would help a politically influential group. Um, but and it, it, it's not nearly enough. And we have been highlighting in our work going back for our clients going back two, three years that if you looked at the rates of growth of debt, the rates of growth of GDP, uh, how important, uh, the the stock market is in terms of driving the u.s economy and we've highlighted it's 160 percent total u.s equity market caps 160 percent of gdp uh if you let look at net capital gains plus taxable ira distributions they are 200 percent of personal consumption expenditure growth so the u.s economy cannot grow mathematically uh unless stocks are rising and so when we looked at all of these things we basically said that in the next crisis it would be unlikely that the stock market would be allowed to sell off for very long before authorities began taking very aggressive measures. And then whenever we had that next crisis, you were going to see, we thought at the very latest, you would see a U.S. fiscal crisis uh, begin to get acute. Uh, I want to say in late 18, we said it was mid, I think I think we said late 21 to early 2022. Um, and what COVID has done is just completely blown a gaping hole in the fiscal projections, in the numbers, uh, and pulled forward that that late 21, early 22 date to March of 2020. Uh, the U.S. now has a fiscal crisis. That's not going away. V-shape, K-shape, L-shape, U-shape, doesn't matter. It's here. Uh, and, and so that then informs the next point your point which is a great one which is okay we can we can forgive student loan debt that's actually mechanically super easy it's even politically pretty easy uh, on the grand scheme of things where it starts to get trickier is isn't the entitlement obligations the pensions public pensions uh, and there's no easy solution for that um you if you raise taxes dramatically uh because of how important the stock market is and asset price inflation is to driving tax receipts uh and where those where the the disproportionate um amount of assets held at at, at upper income brackets you could very easily drive a decline in gdp as a result of a tax increase and then you would actually end up with a lot less in terms of tax receipts by increasing tax rates. Um, that's how far gone we are. And so when you consider that, you, you keep trying to figure out the different possible avenues and you realize the only angle that works is basically the Fed growing the balance sheet. The, basically the Fed's balance sheet sitting at around $7 trillion today, up from 3.7 a year ago is they're, they and or they, through the banking system as proxy for ways we highlighted before, you're basically going to have to move towards this modern monetary theory wartime finance footing that allows the U.S. government to just say, we're going to spend money to stimulate this or that or that, and the Fed's going to have to onboard the whole thing 
uh, by key, effectively, by keeping rates capped at politically expedient levels. And uh, basically, our view has been and has continued to be what we're talking about here is that you end up getting a a a, a bailout of these of these pension systems markets over the backs of bondholders uh, in the U.S. and globally uh, vis-a-vis the dollar. Yeah, and I guess that begs the question is how long will those international bondholders hold those bonds for if they realize this is going on? And yeah, you know, and that that's it's an important question. And I think ultimately, I think central banks began seeing the writing on the wall uh, in the aftermath of 08. You saw them start to buy gold for the first time in 30 or 40 years. Um, and then in 2013, uh, at the end of 2013, excuse me, uh, by 3Q14, global central banks stopped growing their holdings of treasuries on a net basis, and they have not risen since then. Uh, their holdings of gold have continued to rise. And so I think at the highest levels of finance, it began to be seen. Um, certainly when you look back to last August, there was a uh, an excellent uh, white paper uh, written by the BlackRock Investment Institute and uh, former Fed Vice Chair Stan Fisher, uh, head of the uh, former head of the Swiss National Bank, Philip Hildebrand, and then uh, Bank of Canada Governor Jean Boivin wrote a paper, and it was absolutely pivotal. And, excuse me, pivotal in my view. Um, it laid out in the next crisis, we're going to have to go direct, and it's really hard to you know. And, and by direct, we mean we're just going to bypass the the interest rate, you know, the traditional interest rate channel, bypass the banks, fiscal spending, monetization. And the hard part is once we let this genie out of the bottle, this isn't something that's easily um, easily adjustable in terms of the inflation, the currency depreciation. And importantly, it's everybody wants. The paper laid out by region, US, Japan, Europe, China. So they know they, they're sort of all in the same boat. Um, and so there's this ongoing debate of, okay, is it all coming out of the dollar? Is it um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a race between the various major currencies, who's going to win. And our view has really evolved over the last couple of years to, you know, I, we, we, we know based on it being a dollar based system that the U.S. will have to print the mostest. We don't know if they'll print the fastest, but we know they'll print the mostest. They have to. Um, and in the intervening time, there'll be a race. Sometimes the U.S. will be ahead of printing. Sometimes they'll be behind. Um, but ultimately, as, as, as Carol Sokoloff at 13D says, that's why gold is so easy. That's why gold's so simple. Because I don't have to get that race right, right? It's like, you know, betting at the, you know, going to the ballpark and watching, you know, ketchup and mustard and the hot dog and, and relish race around the park in the seventh inning. It's like, <laughs> you never know. It's all a fixed race anyway. Just, you know, bet, you know, bet on, you know, the fact that they're going to sing, take me out to the ball game, which is, is, is gold. Yeah. And I believe earlier this year, you, you expand on how, how much the fed could expand this balance sheet. I believe it was you, and you. You're, it, probably, probably. I wrote, yeah, I wrote quite a bit about it. Uh, yeah. Um, Thirty, thirty-five to forty trillion, I believe, was the number. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what we said back in March, was ultimately, so you know, we 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 did a uh, we did a nice job of of you know of 
recognizing this crowding out of the U.S.'s own banking system uh, that culminated in the in the uh, repo rate spike and 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 then the what the Fed would likely do after that. We did not catch um, a, how severe. Uh, um, the COVID crisis was going to be. Uh, however, once the COVID crisis began to become serious, and in particular, once the authorities began shutting down the real economy, what we said is, look, you cannot have closed down markets, closed stores, um, you know, closed ports, closed economies, and open markets. Because everybody's short dollars, it's a fractionally reserved system. Everyone's gonna show up in markets and sell assets to acquire dollars until either markets are at zero or markets are closed. And so our view was either they are gonna close markets or the balance sheet of, of the Fed is going to have to move toward total credit market debt outstanding rather rapidly um, until the COVID crisis passes. And our view was, okay, total credit market debt outstanding is I think 70 trillion in the US. So you, yeah, I mean, conceivably, if you'd stay in lockdown, um, you would need the Fed's balance sheet to move towards totally reserving, fully reserving that debt, which means basically putting tens of trillions of dollars onto their balance sheet. And I think that's the direction we're still moving, but really the pace at which we're moving that direction is a function of underlying economic growth, what's going on with COVID um, and, and those, those factors. Yeah. So those factors in conjunction with the fact that the Treasury and the Fed have essentially merged together. The Fed is no longer as private as they would like people to believe they are. Is this the death throw of the Federal Reserve System in your mind? Like, and obviously, I know you're a big gold guy and this is a Bitcoin podcast. I, I believe that we're in the death throes, but I don't want to put words in your <laughs> mouth. Like, Is this throwing the hands up, last ditch effort? Hail Mary, and what happens if, if the Hail Mary fails? Um, I don't. I think it's. I think it's in the the current iteration of the dollar centric system that we've seen since seventy one. That I think we are in in the death throes of, and I think ultimately that is a good thing for the U.S. Uh, I think some of that is being driven by the defense establishment um, because part of what this system requires is the U.S. to be become the Saudi Arabia of money, uh, as, as the FT put it uh, a year, year and a half ago. We, our job is to run deficits to export dollars. So we bring in stuff and we export dollars. And there are very clear uh, winners and losers within that system. The, 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 the Wall Street wins, Washington, D.C. wins, the exporters of treasuries. Um, the, the exporters of stuff in the United States economy uh, are losers, middle class, working class, uh, manufacturing, industrials, et cetera. Uh, there was a period of time, there, there was a, a, a conscious decision to do this. It helped us win the Cold War from 71 to 89. It was, it was a, an accepted sacrifice. Post 89, after the Soviet Union collapsed, we should have restructured the system then, but um, look, uh, being a unilateral power was just too tempting for us to, to, to do. And so we hit the, the pedal to the metal uh, on that system. The problems with it became, it were becoming increasingly apparent over the last 10 years to people in the defense establishment, people whose job is to consider supply chains and logistics. Uh, and uh, for those that weren't, they weren't obvious, and, and those problems to, to say them specifically was, 
we were sole source to China on too much valuable stuff, bottom line. And the military was getting increasingly concerned about this. And um, when we fast forward to COVID, anybody that wasn't worried about that, I think became at least cognizant, if not worried about that problem as well. And so I think COVID might've been a final piece in, a term, in, in terms of not only blowing a hole in, you know, in the uh, US's fiscal situation beyond repair and, and really the Western social democracies beyond repair, but it also highlighted the, 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 the one catastrophic flaw of this neoliberal economic system over the last 50 years, which is we are now in a much more adversarial relationship with China and we are in no position our, our, our supply chain, our defense supply chain, our industrial supply chain has been severely weakened by these neoliberal economic policies of the last 50 years, and in particular, the last 25, 30 years. And so um, the, I, I think that system uh, where we are, we, we import stuff and we export dollars and treasuries, I think that system is in its death throes. I, I, I think the Federal Reserve System, uh, I think, is in the process of evolving to something that looks a lot more like the 1946 to 1971 Federal Reserve System or dollar system, where you have a neutral reserve asset. I think the price would, would you know, for example, 1946-71, primary reserve asset was gold. It was not treasuries, um, except gold was fixed at 35 and then $42 an ounce. I think we're moving towards some sort of system where uh, we go back to a neutral settlement asset, whether that's gold at a floating price. Uh, in theory, Bitcoin could be it or some sort of government crypto asset uh, could certainly be it. Um, regardless of what it is, it's very inflationary for the, for, for, for the dollar, for the dollar system, uh, whether it's gold, whether it's crypto, whether it's government crypto. Um, and I, I think you've seen signs over the last 12 months of a recognition of this from Central Bank, whether we go back to Jackson Hole a year ago at that meeting where Mark Carney um, came out and said, look, the dollar's the problem. And to me, that was a, you know, the, we need a neutral settlement asset. To me, it was a, it was a huge moment. Um, PBOC said the same thing in 2009, but that's a PBOC. They're quote unquote, a rogue country. And then Russia said the same thing in 2011, 2014, rogue country. The Iranians, rogue country. Venezuelans, rogue country. The British, very different animal. Um, and in, in terms of, of, of them saying that. So I, I, I and, and I had been told uh, a number of years ago um, that Europe has long felt that the dollar's the problem. Uh, by uh, uh, very high-level European uh, uh, finance slash central banking uh, people, but that it's also something that no one's allowed to be on the record saying in Europe. You can't. Everyone knows the dollar's a problem. No one's allowed to say the dollar's a problem. Uh, and so when you see Carney step up and say vocally the dollar's the problem, um, that to me was was you know again a, a real acceleration of the. The evolution, I think, of where we're where we're going in terms of the Federal Reserve System, where I just think we're evolving again, and you know we'll see how it ultimately looks. But to me, I think we're definitely evolving, and I think we are in the death throes of the '71 to to uh, present system, dollar-centric system as structure. Yeah, so we've seen the Triffin dilemma play out to its full extent at this point. Absolutely, where... absolutely, that's exactly what it is. Is we can't pay back the debt in anything resembling real terms. 
Um, and so the, the, the less we can pay it back in real terms, the less foreigners want to hold that debt, knowing we're going to dilute them. Um, and the system just starts to break down. And this, I, I think ultimately what Larry Summers talked about is, is secular stagnation is, it's secular stagnation is simply a symptom of this, of the breakdown of the dollar centric system, the post $71 centric system due to Triffin's dilemma, which 50, 60 years ago, they said was going to happen. Yeah. And do you think we learn a lesson as a, as a global financial system? Uh, maybe it isn't ideal to have uh, national global reserve currencies like the U S dollar and uh, something apolitical like gold or Bitcoin seems just politically like a much better option. And, and I mean, that's the whole point of the Triffin dilemma is we don't want to give it, give it up because it's what keeps us in power. But obviously there's going to have to be some strong medicine taken and and a correction to some degree. Um, But do you think the, the world learns after this? Like again, you've written about China and Russia trying to uh, denominate oil trades in, in their local currencies. Do you think anybody tries to step into the vacuum created if the dollar were to lose favor um, and, and sort of take its spot as a national currency? Um, I don't think anyone else wants that mantle. Right? How heavy is the head that wears the crown? And the, the, the reason that crown's so heavy is if you want to be the dollar structured as the dollar system was structured after 1971, you have to outsource all your manufacturing. You've got to run massive deficits. You've got to send your young men and women around the world to uh, uh, places no one can find on a map uh, to bleed. And uh, none of those things are politically popular in places like Europe and in Asia, uh, which would be your most your most likely um, candidates. And so I just don't think they even want that. And I think that's why they've structured their currencies to have this tie to a neutral reserve asset, gold uh, for the time being at a floating rate. Um, have we learned our lesson? I, I think the I think the world has learned the lesson for a long, long time. Uh, every time the dollar got strong and, and they sort of you know got slapped on the wrist, they, they've known for a long time this system uh, had a finite life, uh, had winners and losers. Uh, by and large, it's, it's sort of worked for them, I think, up until 2008. I think after 2008, the world said, okay, this, we know this isn't going to work now. And I think that's why you started to see central banks buying gold again for the first time uh, in, in 34 years. Uh, within the United States, have we learned our lesson? Uh, I, I think some groups, yes, some groups, no. But the, 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 the groups that are yes, I would say are sort of the more objective, responsible adults in the room, the, 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 the the military establishment, guys who are apolitical. They are just looking at, can I do my job, which is my job, I have a sworn oath to the Constitution of the United States to defend the Constitution. And right now, as a result of this system, my ability to have the logistics support to do my job has been increasingly weakened by this economic system. Those people, I think, absolutely have learned the lesson. Uh, and I, they've been talking about it for a decade, in some cases more. Uh, those that I say no are, uh, but are, are rapidly changing. I think um, certain elements in technology, uh, lots of people in um, 
at the high end of U.S. corporate uh, um, corporate America and at U.S. high end of U.S. political uh, America. I think um, I think they love this system right up until the point the barbarians showed up at their gate, so to speak. And in the last year or two, the barbarians have shown up at their gate, whether it's you know Chinese technology posing a threat to U.S. technology, whether it's the Chinese stealing technology, whether it's um, all of these things that Washington and Silicon Valley and corporate America have really shifted on over the last five years, um, I think ultimately, um, you know, you hear it spun as, well, we thought if we gave them all this stuff that we would be able to change their political system. And, um, and, and, you know, it reminds me a bit of the of the uh, the fable of the of the frog and the scorpion, right? Where the the water's rising and the and the scorpion says, "Please, you know, frog, just swim me across so I don't drown." And the frog says, "No, you're a scorpion, but I'll drown if you don't, please." And so the frog says, "All right." And so the frog swims him across. They get to their side. Scorpion gets off into dry land. It stings and kills a frog. The frog says, "Why'd you do that?" And he goes, "Well, I'm a scorpion," and <laughs> so it's you know, uh, we we. You know, I've tweeted about it a couple times. You know, I'm the, my father-in-law was like a second father to me. He was a, he was a Teamster official. He was a labor union official, a long time in Ohio. Um, a little different guy than than I think uh, than a, than a lot of folks. But growing up with that perspective, at the end of the day, the deal corporate America made was is they felt like the lo- lesser threat to them was the Communist Chinese Party, the Chinese Communist Party relative to U.S. labor unions and U.S. wages and, and workers. That was the bet they made. They made that, you know, they made their bet and they had to lie in it. And now at the, at the you know, sort of when the devil is here to take the high most, um, they're starting to realize that it maybe wasn't as good a deal as they thought. It was a very front end loaded deal for corporate America. Uh, and at the back end, what you have is uh, Chinese competitors who may or may not treat your intellectual property very well. Uh, and and um, compete against you, beat you at your own game, and that is and that's what I say. The barbarians are now the, the the last sort of group of holdouts that still really like this system that sort of hadn't quote unquote learned the lesson. I think the barbarians showing up at their gate over the last two years, one year, five years, you know, depending on on constituency. Uh, I, I think by and large that you're I don't want to say you're at a consensus in the U.S., but um, you, you're probably more of a consensus on this issue uh, politically in the U.S. than you are about a lot of other issues. I won't say virtually any other issue, but um, uh, uh, relative to a lot of other issues, you're at much more consensus. And so I think I, I think that's as you know, learn the lesson. But that's at the end of the day, um, if you can move something in a productive manner, whether they learn the lesson or not is, is secondary to that. Yeah. And I would say the barbarians are already in, inside the walls too, in the forms of uh, Middle America, which has been hollowed out as a product of of this globalization and this trip and dilemma that we found ourselves in, and so getting attacked from both sides, if you will, and yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next couple, how the next couple of years play out, particularly. Uh, with that being said how big of an opportunity do you see out there for these apolitical monetary goods, whether it be gold or Bitcoin, um, as, as the world starts to look away from the dollar? I think there are enormous opportunities. Um, ultimately, they, 
it's it's ironic the 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 central banks need them to rise to signal, hey, we're doing our job, we're getting the inflation. Uh, the U.S. needs them to rise to help weaken the dollar to accomplish what it wants to accomplish and basically start to resolve Trevin's dilemma, uh, to be able to compete again. Um, and then when you look at the amount of debt outstanding, when you look at even if, say, you know, something we've written extensively about, uh, which is, Ultimately, what you need to do is not change the entire dollar system. But what you need to do is separate the medium of exchange, the dollar, from the store of value, the treasury bond, and um, basically replace the treasury bond with gold, Bitcoin, government crypto, some neutral settlement asset. And really, when you look at intra-country flows, uh, the what jumps out is the biggest differentiator or the biggest creator of imbalances, whether they be surpluses, deficits, et cetera, tend to be commodities and in particular energy. Um, and so when you take a look just at the oil market, physical dollar annual production relative to the dollar annual production of physical gold, uh, the, the oil market itself is about 10 times the size of the physical gold market. Just to give you an idea of just because ultimately, if you're going to move from treasuries to something neutral, that something neutral needs to be made big enough to be liquid enough and physically big enough to, for those to, to settle uh, the, the, the trade that needs to be settled, which tends to be commodities. So energy alone, gold would need to be anywhere from 5 to 10x bigger. Uh, uh, oil alone, excuse me. Then you throw natural gas on top. You throw other forms of energy on top. Then you start throwing in things like copper and, and uh, nickel and some of these other uh, still good size, but, but smaller commodities. You end up realizing that whatever neutral settlement asset you use um, needs to be much, much bigger. And then you get into things like Bitcoin where, you know, to me, I, I look at Bitcoin as a, as a neutral settlement asset for the people, if you will, right? I mean, I, it's, I can get on my phone and I can, you know, gosh, okay, we had revenues of this this week, expenses of this this week. Uh, I need set aside escrow this for taxes and I need escrow this for the kids' tuition. What do I have left over? Oh, okay, you know, a few hundred dollars, perfect. Put it in Bitcoin, da, 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 you know, and now I just bought some Bitcoin. And I, oh, we have a tax bill coming up quarterly. Okay, go, you know, how are we on cash flow? Oh, it's a Bitcoin, okay, back out. And so it's this reserve asset, um, that is that is that is it is exactly how I'm using it, and I think a lot of people are starting to use it that way. And so, the the punchline, the answer to your question is: you start thinking about the amounts of surpluses, however they're generated. At the at the nation national level, it tends to be commodity driven, but at, at the personal level, it it's just bank's not paying me. Why would I put any more money in the bank than I need to? Uh, I'm going to put it somewhere where at least. I, I, I'm happy to take the risk on the downside, um, but I just want to hold it in a, in, a, in a more finite asset than what the bank's going to put it in, which are effectively you know, short-term U.S. Treasuries yielding zero uh, that I know aren't going to rise in price. Um, you know, they won't fall in price. And so I'm, I, 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 it's not like I take the entire profits of the year for FFTT and throw it into to Bitcoin and hold it there. But I think it's just that storing of surpluses. And as more people do this, you're just going to, the market's going to evolve where you're going to get the separation of the medium of exchange and the store of value. And, and um, I, I think as that happens, 
the the upside for things like gold for Bitcoin are just really really big. Yeah, astronaut, and like I really I'm clinging to your uh, your comparison to the energy markets uh, with Bitcoin particularly because I work for a company called Great American Mining and. We go into oil and gas fields here in the United States in the Bakken and Permian uh, specifically, and we use their waste gas to to mine Bitcoin. So any any they poke a hole in the ground, get the oil out, and can't pipe the the natural gas to market will show up and just consume that for very low. So comparing Bitcoin to energy markets is really interesting to me because I think we're starting to develop a thesis at, at GAM that that Bitcoin is the the currency of energy and it will be the energy consumer of last resort, Bitcoin mining particularly, that helps get the world to like Henry Ford's energy currency that he envisioned where uh, you're, you're pricing things on a per kilowatt hour basis and, and how much energy it consumes instead of a free float national currency. Um, That's really interesting. A a- That's, it's exactly what it is. And it's, it's, it, yeah, it ultimately incents the efficient use of energy, which is what you want to do anyway. That's the very definition of capitalism, really, in terms of getting better at making things, etc. Um, but that's that's exactly what you're what you what you're doing. It's exactly what gold is too, right? It, where you're just mm-hmm. it's just compressed and stored energy, you, where you're taking it from, you know. Because as you guys know, uh, I'm imagining that taking the gas instead of it being flared off and compressing it or storing it, capturing it somehow and moving it from point A to point B. Uh, it's a capital intensive process, I would suspect, uh, to a certain degree. And so, but the very fact that it's capital intensive is the reason it's valuable uh, as opposed to just being created out of out of thin air. And, and that is ultimately the hallmark of a, of a you know, of a real currency, of a, of a you know, of, of a real store of value. Hard asset, yeah. Exactly. Bitcoin uses proof of work to to bring it into uh bring it to the market, and it's uh it's funny seeing Bitcoin get bashed for like over energy consumption, but it, when people really peel back the uh, the curtain and actually look what type of energy is being consumed, you'll notice that it's stranded renewables or something like waste gas, which have, would have just been burned off anyway. So it's better to turn it into something productive. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately, if you start actually pricing energy properly, uh, it, which is what that does, you're going to incent over time society to use that energy more efficiently, uh, to, 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 to build more energy efficient infrastructure. To be, So it's actually, even if it was using polluting energy, which, which it's, which it's, it's not to your point. Um, you're still going to, you're basically pricing thing. You're pricing it properly and you're, you're, you're attributing a value. So now all of a sudden, um, you know, if, if I can print dollars for oil, what, what do I care? I mean, I'll just drive the, you know, I'll have a jet come get me. I'll have a helicopter take me to and from work. Right. Uh, I'll drive to the Hummer and then it's awesome. But if you start, um, you know, it's pricing energy properly, you 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 basically start balancing out your economy instead of just everyone working in the finance sector because you know you can print dollars and create dollars who needs who needs to actually make all the other stuff in the energy chain or the industrial chain etc um you know let's just make dollars and export dollars because then everyone else will send that stuff that's that's you know sort of a, a, a microcosm of this 
system that has evolved where we can just print dollars. And so you, you, you learn, you, you lose sort of what the real value is of just about anything else. Yeah. I mean, this brings a full circle back to the, the tweet that we started this off on the dollar as a, as a ruler written on a rubber band. And... <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And this, you know, Bitcoin structure puts the ruler on a, uh, on, on a piece of wood. Yeah. It's, I mean, if you want to extrapolate very far out into the future, if Bitcoin is successful, let's say decades to a century, you could argue that energy producers would replace the central banks because the central banks right now are at the the core of money production with the U.S. dollar system particularly. But in the future, if Bitcoin or, or gold becomes more more popular, more in favor, I think Bitcoin will will be more popular just because of the digital age and its ability to arb these stranded renewal or these stranded energy sources. Um, the energy companies, the energy producers will replace the central banks as the source of money, literally create building blocks that distribute the new money to, to the economy. And then, then you get into some weird hypotheticals of how finance happens and, and where it flows from, from there. Oh, I think that's right. I think, and I would add, you, you could, I would say that you can see energy companies, and I would define them as broadly. It's not just you know sort of the traditional fossil fuels, but new types of energy, um, you know, alternative and anything else they sort of create. Um, and and I would lump gold miners in there too, where they would be sort of the new merchant banks um, in terms of of having this um, exactly what you described. Yeah, and it's uh, so given the the juncture that we find ourselves in, it seems. Uh, very, very fragile. Are you, and this is like a very broad question, but I'm very curious because you seem like a, a very optimistic person. Are you optimistic about I the am. future? I am. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, what, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say what, what particularly makes you optimistic? So I, I'm optimistic about where things are going. Um, ultimately, you know, I get, I get the sense that, we're moving in a direction where you're going to have a much more sustainable economic system. Um, you're going to have a much more balanced economic system. Um, you know, you're, you, we've seen just the, the, um, the, um, the, the, the pace of technological change and advancement. You can see to me, you can see clear to a world where a lot of sort of the basic needs are met. And then, you know, the, the, the internet, allows a lot of different people to pursue interests that are, are much more of interest to them. So whether that's, you have some sort of, um, I don't even know, uh, you have a neutral currency, you have a universal basic income for some component, and then you also supplement that with your ability to, I don't know, if you like art or you like music, or you basically, the internet allows a renaissance of the United States as a nation of shopkeepers, uh, particularly once you fix the currency issues, which I think we're evolving towards. Um, and that, when you layer that together with some of the technological advances and potential technological advances and things like energy, then uh, I'm very optimistic. Um, that said, I'm also not Pollyannish in terms of uh, if this is managed poorly. If this is managed poorly, um, boy, it could be 
it, it could be catastrophic. Um, sort of all the worst parts of all the, 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 the biggest doom and gloomers out there. Um, given uh, how, ten, again, given the level of just financially, given the level of debt, given the, the how stretched supply chains are, uh, given the derivatives, given uh, geopolitical tensions, um, I'm definitely cognizant that historically these geopolitical power competitions haven't always resolved themselves uh, peacefully. Um, you know, so there's, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, but I'm also, uh, there are things I watch for. And uh, I, I, th I think I, I know enough about the context of some of the broader issues and how they've resolved themselves historically that if I see things develop in a certain way where it would trick off, you know, or, 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 or trigger a, some sort of internal warning sign to me of, of okay, this, we're, we're now beyond some point of return. And, and, and this, you know, my optimistic scenario is, is now either been impaired or is now off the table. And, you know, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. I don't know if that would be external or internal to the United States. Um, I could paint pictures of all of those, but I think I would know what it is when I saw it, uh, sort of thing. And and so, uh, but net net, I'm I'm still optimistic for uh, where this is going. And and as 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 Winston Churchill apocryphally said, you know, the Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the alternatives. And we're just about out of alternatives. Uh, so. Uh, the fact that you're seeing Washington, both sides of the aisle, come around to some of the things we were talking about before um, in terms of the, the structure of the system suggests to me that, okay, there's still, there's still cause for that optimism. Yes. No, I would, I would parrot that optimism too, especially when you see individual individuals and then companies and corporations just deciding for themselves that apolitical assets like gold and Bitcoin to their balance sheets. Like, Hey, we'll prepare for this. If it's a grassroots bottom up transition to, to an apolitical good, that's a good sign to me. And then you couple that with, um, something like earlier this year when, when Trump announced whether you hate him or love him, he announced, uh, the fact that we'll be building a chip foundry here in Arizona, which is huge. And so bringing some of that manufacturing back to America. And if anything, this year has acutely highlighted the, the problems that exist within our system and the first part of solving a problem is recognize you have one. I think more people <laughs> now than ever recognize that we have a big problem on our hands. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and, and you get some of the neoliberal economist uh, crowd that has kind of said, hey, well, all trade is good. And yes and no, it's all fun and games until we have COVID and 80% of our antibiotics are made in a country where they may or may not have our best interests at heart. And so like even that crowd being able to say, Okay, maybe we maybe we did go a little too far. To your point, it's understanding that. Okay, you're right. It's it's a first step to, to solving a problem is is admitting you have a problem. And no one could defend after earlier this year. No one could defend that old system. How far that old system had gone. Um, hey, we don't have enough PPE. Well, no kidding. You just outsourced everything to China over the last twenty years, and 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 you all espoused it. And Okay, so now, you know, we the last the last stragglers of people, you know, it was it's been a, an interesting thing for me to see, um, you know, some of the US economic establishment sounding more and more like my Teamster union leader father in law 15 years ago, 
like farmers 15 years ago, like working class Americans 15 years. <laughs> wow, we should bring stuff back. And really, okay, you know, that's, but again, it's, the point is not who's right or who's wrong. It's we're moving in the right direction. And that's, we're finally moving in the right direction, I think, in terms of a more balanced economy, um, a more sustainable, uh, as Nicholas Nassim Tlaib calls it, anti-fragile economy. Um, and, and to me, I think I think it's gonna be a really, really good thing for America. I think it's gonna be a really, really good, really good thing for the world. Uh, I don't think it's gonna be a really good thing for the international trade value of the dollar or for people who have too much of their net worth tied up in you know nearly 0% yielding debt. Uh, but there have been plenty of warnings uh, in terms of, of where we're moving. So, and, and again, if, if wages are rising a lot, I think that's a good thing. Uh, they've not been rising a lot for 50 years in real terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in real terms at all. Yeah. They'll tell you. They'll tell you there's no inflation, but the wages will stagnate. <laughs> I, had a great, I had a great conversation on Twitter with. Uh, um, oh gosh, um, I can't think of his name right off the top of my head, but he's, he's a pretty widely followed guy, and and he always makes fun of the inflation truthers, what he, what he calls them. And uh, it was funny because I said to him, I said, you know, something I've noticed is the the quote unquote inflation truthers versus not. Is I tend to find that those saying that inflation is accurately managed tend to be single people with no kids <laughs> and, and that basically it's amazing the shift in that that sort of you know inflation truther versus it being accurate how that shift happens once you start having kids and you start having to buy stuff for your kids and you go there's no freaking way cpi is two or three percent or whatever the heck they say it is it's way more yeah it was a an inflation truther um for a while and, and then when i had my son six months ago i just it, it really increased that that belief <laughs> that that inflation is <laughs> congratulations that's uh it's an exciting thing they're they're super fun i just saw my oldest one off to college last week so it uh ah. it uh it, it goes fast he was he was just six months old like uh six months ago it seems like so <laughs> well congratulations to you for getting one off to college uh my son waved for the first time. It's his new trick. He's waving to people. He's developing social skills. Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's it's fun to watch. the best. I remember that well. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Luke, thank you for doing this. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, before we wrap up here, you, you released a book recently, uh, uh, the Mr. X interviews. You just want to give a quick blurb on that. And, Absolutely. Um, where we can find it. Absolutely. So uh, released uh, last week, actually, the Mr. X, uh, Mr. X, Vo- let me try this again, the Mr. X interviews volume two uh, to follow up to the volume one that we released a couple years ago. And it is the a, a book I wrote uh, that is a uh, conducted in the Socratic method. So an interview conversation between me and a fictional sovereign creditor of the United States that really looks at a number of different issues uh, as, a, as a sovereign creditor of the United States would uh, on a real-time basis, goes through uh, events of the last several years. So the book starts at the end of 2017 and finishes up in early 2019. So um, you can find that on amazon.com, of course. Uh, and in terms of our other uh, work, uh, fftt-llc.com, you can find out more about our different research product offerings there. And uh, uh, I've got an active uh, Twitter feed at, at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. 
someone I've been following on Twitter for years and highly recommend. You've been on my finance and economic list since I, I don't even remember what I threw you on there, but it's been a great value add to, Thank you. Um, to my inf- information sources, particularly on Twitter. Thank you. So, no, thank you for putting out great content, and thank you again for agreeing to come on. This is a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Always, always a blast. Awesome. All right. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love.